0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Hebrews 11, verse 23. Let's read this. We'll pray and we'll get to work here. Hebrews eleven twenty three 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents Because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, this is our our proof verse, our, our main verse today, so it's worth reading twice. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. So, this is the word of the Lord, to which we say... Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you this morning for Hebrews eleven twenty three. For this section of scripture today that you are desiring to feed us with. And Lord, we're just reminded that that's who you are. You're a God who takes care of us like a parent. You protect us. You provide for us. The ultimate evidence of this is you sending your son, Jesus, to provide for our greatest need, and that was a Savior. So thank you, God, that we can call you our Father in heaven today because of your son, Jesus. And I pray this morning, God, that as we come, that, that you would would feed us this morning. As we come to you, as we come before you, I pray for just your spirit to be even at work right now to create a community here that has receptive hearts. We just want receptive, moldable hearts that are pliable in your hands, that that can be softened by your word and your love. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come now and God, make my preaching and make this time more than it could ever be on our own. Make it useful for us and may it be glorifying to you. We, We pray this each and every week, God. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make your voice loud and clear in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. The origin story of Moses here. What a significant figure in history. How many of you guys have seen The Prince of Egypt? All right. What about that botched film with Christian Bale? Anybody? No? Okay, a couple of you. I'm sorry you had to see that. Um, Such an incredible origin story as we look at the events surrounding Moses' early days as a newborn. Here in Hebrews 11, it's really interesting how the verse reads, by faith Moses, right? Moses as a baby got hid by faith. Like, it's interesting. This actually isn't the faith of Moses. As we read it, we see that this is the faith of Moses' parents and not just Moses' parents, but specifically this is the faith of Of Moses' mother. When you read the account, I'm sure dad was involved. Dad was there. But this is the faith of Moses' mother being highlighted here when we read the account in Exodus. Moses' mother, her name is Jacobed. I'm sure there's a more Hebrew way to pronounce it, but I'm not going to try. Jacobed. By faith, this verse tells us about Moses' mother that at a time, listen closely, When the government and the king had commanded every Jewish male-born child to be thrown into the river and killed, the river Euphrates, Moses' mother concealed him in hiding for three months in defiance to the government order because she saw he was beautiful, and I want you to notice this, and because she was not afraid. Because she was not, she mothered well, because she was not afraid of the king's command. So this is what Hebrews wants to highlight about Jochebed. What Hebrews wants to highlight about Jochebed's faith is this. We have been looking at a different verb each week, and we'll say this morning, if you'd like to take notes, that by faith, Jochebed, Moses' mother, feared God. She was not afraid of the king's command because she had a higher authority and she feared God. Now, right then and there, when you put those two words together, you are opening a can of worms. Uh, some of us, we, we, we have no concept for the idea of fear and God coming together in the same sentence. In fact, or, or maybe for some of us, we have some trauma from that. Maybe we have some ideas about that that are maybe more relevant than we want to. Maybe a lot of us, we... We carry a lot of fear in our life and as it pertains to God. But, but let's clarify what we mean by this. This is clearly a, a biblical thing, a, a, a scripturally prescribed heart posture to have. The fear of the Lord that we see Moses' mother having here is something that um, is encouraged all throughout Scripture. Just kind of a, a quick overview. Let me give you this. Uh, in the Bible, when we talk about this idea of fearing God, the scriptures give us two general ways, two general ways that the fear of God takes place. Almost two kinds of, of the fear of the Lord, generally. There's a, there's a lot of different nuances to this, but if we're going to get general, uh, there's two kinds of fear in scripture. There's, there's a fear that's the way of the unbelieving, those who are still turned in rebellion towards the God who loved and loves them and created them. And then there's the fear of the believing, even Christians, those who believe God, who call God their Father, you know, by the Spirit we, we holler, Abba, Papa, all right, that's what Romans 8, 15, uh, 16 says. Uh, even Christians in Scripture are called to fear the Lord, but there's, there's two different kinds of fear that we see in Scripture. Uh, for the unbelieving, there is this real, legitimate, terrifying fear that the Bible describes, Now, not terrifying in the sense of like Halloween, spooky, boogeyman, evil, not like that terrifying. But a a real recognition of who God is, especially as someone who has rebelled against him and has defied God and has made themselves their own authority. Like the way that you would fear um, any other consequence of your decisions. Now, let me give you a couple scriptures about this. Hebrews 10.31 says, like, this is not exactly like the verse that's in most people's Instagram bio, right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is where you get, like, if you, by the way, if you just, but there's people that, like, love this verse, too. It's like, chill out, okay? There's, like, both sides of it. People are, like, won't even read this, and there's people who are like, yeah, God's terrifying. It's like, chill, okay? But, There is a a truth prescribed in Scripture about the reality of the situation that a sinner is in, unrepentant sinner, in relationship to a holy God. Um, It's what makes sin so serious. Sin is not just something that we commit to one another, whether it's injustice or or, or any kind of sin that we're we're committing. The Bible describes it ultimately as an offense against God, a holy God. This is the condition of man, by the way. We've turned from God. We're fallen in a state of rebellion from the very beginning. Mankind has been doing the same thing in their relationship with God, which is pushing him away, wanting to be their own God, saying, yeah, I appreciate the world you created, the life you gave me, the breath in my lungs, but I'm going to live life on my own terms. Romans 1 says what, what humanity does is actually suppress the truth of God, like trying to push a beach ball underwater. I want to act like God's not real because I don't want to have to bow down and submit to him and serve him. And this is the condition of, of fallen humanity. This is the condition of the world, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and lives. And there's this reality that in that state, it's a fearful thing then to be unrepentant, to be an unbeliever and stand before a holy God in your own strength or in your own attempts at righteousness. That's a, the Bible would say this, that's a scary place to be. So if this morning, you're not, it's, it's, you're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, you're not someone who's been covered in the blood of Jesus, forgiven and cleansed through the cross, if instead you're someone who's clothed in your own idea, in your own righteousness, in your own tempts of religion, in your own good deeds, if you're clothed even in your own perception of, of how life works, and you're your own autonomous God, it's a terrible and fearful place to be in standing before God. Now, it'll get a little lighter in a second, but in fact, in, in the book of Jude, it's an interesting section. In the book of Jude, it says that even in our, in our evangelism, even as we're, we're, we're sharing the gospel, sometimes you have to make a distinction in your ministry. There, there's times where you have to show compassion, and see where someone's at, and this is, I think, like a really helpful thing to do. It's, it says in Jude one twenty two that on some we got to have a compass- compassion, like not every every person you encounter that's not walking with Jesus needs to be screamed at, and con- like first of all, we're not called to condemn at all, but there, but a lot of us we need to learn to adopt the heart of compassion towards people. They're lost, they're broken, they're in need of a savior. You know, seeing people the way Jesus sees them. But the next verse in Jude, I actually don't have it on here, but the next verse in Jude, verse 23, says that there's some that you need to save with fear. Some you've got to have compassion, and others that you're trying to lead to Christ, you've got to, like, you look at where their life is headed, and because you love them, and you know what the future entails, there's this godly fear that enables your ministry to them. Now, that's the first kind of fear that the Bible talks about. Like, I'm just not going to sugarcoat it. This is a biblical... Uh, truth here. A terrifying fear for those who are unbelieving because of who God is as holy. Now, the other kind of fear that you see in Scripture is also for the saved, prescribed to the saved. It's a believing fear or a recognizing fear. This is a, another interesting concept. Um, it, it's not the kind of fear that, that's scared of God because God is our Father. And in fact, even if right now you're at a place where you go, I'm unbelieving and I, I haven't given my life to Jesus and I see where I'm at, Here's the good news. God is love, and God loves you. And he sent his son Jesus to die for you, to adopt you into his family, the greatest display of love ever. And for those who are in Christ, we're still called to a certain kind of fear. It's Hebrews 12. It's the fear that Jacobet is displaying. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. This is for a Christian. This isn't a, you know, perfect love casts out fear. This isn't a fear that's like afraid to approach God. We come boldly to his throne of grace. But this is a fear that lives in recognition of God's kingdom. A Christian is someone who sees that God has the highest authority. He's the king of all kings. He's the one to be revered. He's the one to be feared, not man. Not earthly authority. The Bible does prescribe a, a degree of submission to earthly authority. But ultimately, what we see Jacobed modeling there in Hebrews 11, her faith, it looks a lot like this. It's a faith that's, that's worshiping God for who he is, it's a faith that lives in recognition of how great God is. I mean, you think of like standing before the Grand Canyon, something as massive as that, and you're like, whoa. It's a healthy recognition. You're not going to play along the edge if you're smart, right? Well, well, listen, imagine that was created by God. Imagine standing before God. There's this Grand Canyon sense of, whoa, this is God and there's no one like him. There's no one above him. There's no one in contest with him. He's God. That's a recognizing fear. And again, that's the fear of, of Jochebed here. Now, what I want us to focus on uh, here in this verse, and really where the ver- verse leads us to focus on, it's pretty interesting. Again, it tells us she was not afraid of the king's command, right? So it shows us, it shows us where her fear was. Um, when the government was calling her to, or commanding something that God forbid, God forbid, it did, I don't know. When that happened, she was not afraid because she ultimately feared and served God, so she wasn't going to go along with what she was being commanded to do because it was in disobedience to God and she was going to obey God rather than man. Um, The interesting thing that I want us to see, though, is specifically what her fear of God enabled her to do. What did the fear of the Lord enable Jochebed to do? And that is this. It's to flourish in her ministry as a parent. The fear of the Lord the recognizing fear of who God is, is what enabled Jacob and Moses' mom to be the best mom that she could be to her child, to be the best parent that she could be to Moses. Um, And, you know, as I was kind of preparing this, I was like, man, how can I make this kind of exclusively parenting message a little bit more universal and applicable to everyone and after some prayer and study, I realized I can't because it's not for everyone. Well, maybe it is. This is definitely a, a, a display of faith for parents, but the encouragement here is, is, is for, for all of us is to be reminded of our responsibility to the next generation. How our choices, how our faith affects those who are next up in line, our legacy of faith. And and let me say, like obviously that is exclusively or rather majorly for parents, but it's not exclusively for parents. The next generation is, is all of our responsibility. But, but let's look at this. As we look at what, I want us to see this specifically, what Jochebed's fear of the Lord enabled her to do as a flourishing mother. I mean, that's what she was able to do. Because she feared God, she was able to be the best mom as possible. Um, some of us are parents. Not all of us are parents. I pray that if it's your desire, you will one day be a parent however God intends for that to happen. But there are still, regardless of the way at, I think some really helpful principles in this, in her life, uh, that can equip us all in our ministry to the next generation. Let's look at a couple of these things. The first thing that I want us to see is the context of her faith here, the context of her ministry to the next generation, which I think is a really great place to start. Um, when I think about maybe some of the issues that a lot of parents face, what I see sometimes, what I see in the mirror, and what I see out the window, is a lot of times, the major issue in parenting is doing it without context. In other words, understanding what you're up against, understanding what, what you're dealing with as a parent, understanding what's at stake. That's the context of parenting. Um, what was the context of Jacobed's faith, I think we're going to find it to be kind of similar to, to where we're at. By the way, context is, is the circumstances that form the setting of something. All right. Uh, here's what it says, and this is where we left off last week as we go back to the context of this event. Joseph dies. Great guy, great testimony. We studied his life extensively last week. He dies, also all of his brothers, and all that generation. Remember, at this point, Israel, the nation and the family of Israel, not a nation yet, becoming a nation, we'll see in a second, The family of Israel is in Egypt for their own survival because of a famine. They've traveled from Canaan to Egypt, where there is a surplus of of food that Joseph is responsible for providing. And they're there in Egypt. And eventually, time goes on, as their family is growing in Egypt. Joseph, all his brothers in that generation, dies but it tells us, you guys know the story in verse 7, that the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and they multiplied and grew and exceedingly, uh, and grew exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. Now this is uh, taken direct, the language here in, in the Hebrew, three Hebrew words specifically, is taken directly out of Genesis 1 where, where God gave the creational mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that was God's purpose and mission for mankind and we see it being fulfilled they're his people. As they are there in Egypt, they are multiplying, they are being fruitful, and they are exceedingly uh, growing exceedingly mighty, and the land is filled with them. Now, change of power happens. A change of power, okay? Uh, Joseph was working for the old boss, and a new boss comes in. whole different work dynamic. If you've ever been in that situation, you know what that's like. Uh, that happened to Joseph. There arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. I mean, Joseph had paved and proved his way for the previous king, the pharaoh. Joseph was, a, was a, at, at one point, he was the, aside from the king, the main authority in Egypt. But a new king comes in, he's like, I don't know, who's Joseph? I don't know Joseph, you're not that guy, pal. He's like, I don't know him, all right? It tells us this, and, and this pharaoh says to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. The whole fruitful and multiplying thing is really taking our nation over. They're doing a really good job at this. They're, they're just having kids like crazy, and then grandkids, and then great-grandkids. And this family, it's like they're becoming a nation, like God said they would. Come, here's an action plan. Let us deal shrewdly with them, or, or craftily, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us potentially talking about the Hittites to the north. You know the Hittites? Yeah, the Hittites. So potentially they could branch off and partner with them and make war against us. So they start to see Israel as a threat. And so here was their plan. Therefore, let's set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And so they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. So they see Israel as a threat. And so their action plan is, well, let's afflict them. Let's give them harsh and heavy work. Let's enslave them and put taskmasters over them. For some reason, this seems to be the tradition with God's people. Anytime affliction comes against, multiplication is always the result. This is really interesting. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. It's like when you try to kick an ant pile, you're like, I got it. It's like, oh gosh, okay? This is really interesting. This is also reminiscent to me of Acts chapter... I believe, is where the first persecution breaks out against the early church in Jerusalem. And and you have some scholars believe in Acts 6, at least, that there's like 12,000 Christians in Jerusalem. And they're all kind of huddled up and huddled together there. And Jesus is like, Remember the whole ends of the earth thing I gave you? And so persecution comes. They try to put a stop to the church. But as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what usually happens whenever persecution come, comes against the church to squash it, it, it just serves as fuel to multiply the work. There's just, I think it's what it does to the faith of the church. It becomes real. And then that starts, people start going, we need to be on mission. We need to, we need, we, our lives are at stake. It's Jesus or nothing. Let's go with Jesus. And multiplication is the result. It's really interesting. Uh, this is kind of a tradition throughout history with God's people. The more God's people are afflicted and opposed, the more successful they are. The more they multiply, and the more they grow. So the Egyptians may the children of Israel serve with rigor. So they're like, how do we kind of keep these these Jews under control? They're multiplying. Let's give them jobs and taskmasters and make them work. Let's, let's overpower them and, and, and uh, let's enslave them. So they're creating um, racial systems within their country, which our, our country is, is um, unfortunately not unfamiliar with this in our history, where we're going to oppress this people group f- in order to kind of keep them in, in check and keep them in line. So that's what they do. And when they continue to multiply and grow... They go, well, let's make, them serve. let's make it harsher. Let's be rude. Let's make the job even harder. This is the context. And so it says that they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. And in, and their, all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor or harshness. So, so this is what they're trying to do. It doesn't seem to work, though. It says, then the king of Egypt, this is where kind of the, the story takes a, a pretty... It was already dark and evil and sinful and racist and unjust. But then it takes a turn here in verse 15. The king of Egypt speaks to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other was Pua. Now, it's possible that these are like the two main midwives, I don't know, or just two random midwives. You know, all I know is what we have here. But these seem to be some important enough Hebrew midwives that they call them near, and they say, here's the plan. When you do the duties of a midwife, of of For the Hebrew woman, and see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. This is how we'll squash the race. We'll just take out their sons. They can't multiply anymore. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But, just like Jochebed, the midwives, what? Feared God. They feared God. They were commanded to do something, um, to kill the male-born children, but they weren't having it. Um, they feared God and they didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the male children alive, which is what you should do when the government is... Comm- either, there's two biblical criteria for disobeying the government, by the way. This will be fun. Anytime an earthly power commands something God forbids, disobey. Anytime an earthly government forbids something God commands. Peter and John in prison, you shall not make make mention of the name of Jesus. They go, (laughs) shall we obey you or God? Just wondering. Anytime an earthly power commands something God forbids or forbids something God commands, I, as your pastor, encourage you to disobey the government. That said, the government has a, a, a biblical purpose. Read Romans 13, kind of taken out of context and isolated too much. But the government, if they're doing their job, exists to execute justice in a nation. Now, it gets a little tricky when we start calling good evil and evil good in the country. Then it's like, whoa, okay. Obey the government? What, what's going on here? So, so I'll just, that's all I'm going to give you for now, okay? Okay. Um. You're not, by the way, you're not a Hebrew midwife, so chill, okay? Like, don't take it. It's like, yeah! It's like, okay. You're not being, commi- okay? Now, I want you to notice this, though, because we see their defiance in action. It's a real beautiful example of, of spiritual defiance. The king of Egypt calls for the midwives, says to them, Why have you done this thing? And disobeyed my order and saved the male children alive. And the midwives, I love these midwives. This would be like a TLC show, the, the real midwives of Egypt. Look at it says. <laughs> and the midwives, these girls are sassy, they say to Pharaoh, because the, he, because the Hebrew women ain't like your Egyptian women, all right, they're lively, and they give birth before the midwives come to him. Now, we're, I listen, I don't know if this is true. I don't think so. Like Maybe this is happening every time that God's like, oh, Okay, we're just gonna pop them out early, like a vending machine, before the midwives get there, and so that could be what's happening. So before the midwives get there, like, oh, sorry, too, we got we show up too late. It could be instead that they're um, they're being dishonest, they're being shrewd themselves in response to the shrewdness that's coming at them. Nonetheless, they're like our women ain't like your women, all right, Pharaoh. Our women are lively, and before we show up, the baby's there. Therefore, notice this, <laughs> God's like good job. God deals well with the midwives. He's like, you did well to find the government there. And the people multiplied and grew very mightily. This is interesting. So, one of, the, one of the morals of the story of the Bible in history is that with every great work of God, there's an opposing work of the enemy that's always combated again with a greater work of God. That, that even right now, as you're thinking about what you're up against in life, remember, the purposes of God will always be prevail despite temporary opposition despite who's out to steal kill and destroy just a beautiful display of this they're continuing to grow mightily and so it was because the midwives fear god that they that god provided households for them they became mothers god's like you're gonna be a mom now so pharaoh commanded so he's like okay there's the midwives aren't going to listen to me. They're going to serve God and not me. So Pharaoh commands all his people saying, every son who is born to you, he commands all the people, this is specifically for the Jewish people. He's not going to exterminate his own race. He's exterminating, trying to exterminate the race of the Jews. This is like the, the, one of the, the first examples we have of anti-Semitism in history. Every son who is born to you shall be cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So, so this is the context. Every attempt to exterminate the multiplying Jewish people is being being met with the favor of God in in the face of that. And and so the king is like, he has one last option here. So he he issues this command that we see Jochebed defying in a second. um, That says, okay, fine, if you're not going to kill your own children, I'll do it. I'll send out a command, and all the people will know that if there's a Jew, a, a male Jewish-born child, that he should be killed. He doesn't deserve to be alive. We're going to kill him. Every son, I mean, I have a son. I'm just trying to, we can read this stuff and be so useless, but just stop for a second and think about if you have a son, if you could think about what this is like, or just try to imagine having a child. You find out it's a boy, and the culture around you is bent towards their destruction. There's a command. It's this like royal death sentence for your child. Every son who is born to you shall be cast into the river. Um, This is, I want you to see this again. This is the context of Jochebed's faith. I I want you to hear it this way. Um, This is the context that Moses is born into. The context is a relentless and demonic system that is working to destroy the next generation. I'm not one to build up the secular boogeyman. If you come to Solus, you you know that that doesn't tend to be my means and method of of ministry. But I I am one to be honest about what the Bible will prescribe and describe about our culture, about the world that we're in. In fact, that's the exact word that the Scripture uses to help us understand what's going on. There's there's us in the kingdom of God, and then there's where we are in the kingdom of God here in the world. The world is the word that the Bible uses. The world. And, And in Scripture, the world is used to describe a system that... Um, uses the flesh to accomplish the purposes of the demonic. It, it's this relentless and demonic system in culture here in Moses' age, that is bent on the destruction of the next generation. I mean, I'm reading this. I'm going, yeah, i I, I feel that way as a father of three kids. I feel like this is this, obviously not physically. But I do feel, in a spiritual sense, when I look at the landscape of our culture, when you look up the, at the statistics of Gen Z, when you look at what technology, the good that technology is bringing and the destructive effects that technology is bringing to the next generation, sometimes I feel like this is the culture that my kids are being born into, a culture that is bent on their destruction. Uh, it, it's almost like, like Moses, our kids today have the odds stacked against them in terms of their spiritual survival. It's getting harder and harder to be a real Christian. Harder and harder for us. Imagine how hard that's going to be for our children. Now, this is the context, again, that Moses is born into. It's similar to what we have today. I want you to see just kind of, I think, a reminder of this because I think that this is the context we miss sometimes in parenting? Like, we're trying to get our kids healthy. We want want them to be smart. We want them to be educated. Remember for a second the context of your life as a Christian and your kids. Stop for a second and think about what's at stake for your children in terms of their faith and the culture they're being raised in. Just think about it for a second. Don't just parent without context. Stop and think. Be reminded of what, I want you to notice this, be reminded of what Ephesians talks about. In the book of Ephesians, you have this, this verse, Ephesians 6:1, children obey your parents to the Lord, for this is right. The next verse, uh, a few verses down, verse four, fathers don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Like this is like a famous parenting, child child relationship passage, and it gives instructions. Children obey, parents, you know, train your kids up in the way of the Lord. Like I think we forget the context of this, you know what the next couple of verses is? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Like, we we look at verses like this. Here's the next one, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Listen, I'm not going to get too spiritual and weird on you this morning. Okay, we're not going to get too much into the devil, all right? But... A lot of times, our theology and our concepts of spiritual warfare are, are relegated to kind of these extreme, dark, and evil big events of life. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about, we talk about this all the time in his book, The Screwtape Letters, the two kinds of people who relate to the, the realm of, of the demonic and the devil, right? Uh, there, there's the, the person he calls the magician who, like, blames everything on the devil, everything's magic. Ooh, the devil! It's like, it's like, why are you being so mean to your children? It's like the devil. It's the devil. It's like, no, you need a Snickers or a nap. Like you need to chill. It's not the devil, it's you, okay? Like so he says it's the it's the magician, and that person he describes as kind of having overbelief of the enemy. There's the other extreme, which is I think what's a little bit more relevant to our culture, which it's not the magician. C. S. Lewis says it's the materialist. It's underbelief. It's only demonic. It's only spiritual warfare. It's only really, you know, about life or death. If there's something like from a scary movie happening, like the like head spinning around or like some green stuff, demonic. Okay, the materialist attributes everything to the natural. And it's, it's sort of, it's been called like functional deism, where like God in the spiritual realm, they're there, but they're not really here. They're just kind of over there. And it's like, they're kind of doing their thing. We got to do our thing over here. And, and those, are, those are two lanes of peril, especially in parenting. You know what Paul's giving us here with this verse? Like this verse is not describing the exorcist. This verse is giving us the context of Parenting. Isn't that crazy? The context of this is parenting and marriage, everyday life, like being a mom and dad, like being a good spouse, like, like work, the context is going to work. It's in those ordinary arenas of life that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what at say.'s That's the context. Of, it's not something to take lightly. How many of us are taking parenting so lightly? And we kind of just pass it off with the, with this apathetic theology that, you know, it's uh, in the end, God is sovereign, he'll take... It's like, there's a lot at stake. The context demands some attention. Now, I, I want to... Again, I'm like, I'm not one... If you're your first time here, you're like, this guy just said he doesn't talk about a secular boogeyman. He just embodied him in the devil. Wouldn't love this church, okay? But I, I want to point out something. That though this is the context that Moses is born into, and though this is also, I believe... Symbolic of the context that our children are born into. A context where the the book of, of John, Jesus says this, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the context. There's an enemy. There's a system. The goal of it is the destruction of our children. That's the context. I want you to notice that even though Moses had the odds stacked against him, he had something special in his favor. He was the child of believing parents. Moses opens his eyes to an unfriendly world that exists to destroy him, but he had an advantage. He was the child of believing parents. Maybe we've experienced so much defeat that we forget about the power of this. We've seen so many, maybe, examples of, of kids walking away from the Lord. Or we see the swaths and, the, as they say, the droves of Christians leaving the church. Maybe the issue isn't that the parenting isn't working. Maybe it's not happening. Maybe it's not happening. We see in Scripture, I've seen the fruit in my life, we see this, that there is an advantage, there is an opportunity you have as a parent to give your kids an advantage in a culture that wants them destroyed, truly. We see that with Jacobed. We see the contents of her faith in this verse, in these passages. The context of it is a culture that wants to destroy their kids, and in that culture, the contents of Jochebed, Moses' mother's faith comes out. She's a woman who fears the Lord. That makes all the difference. It makes all the difference for your kids. Are you a person who fears the Lord? It changes everything. It, puts you on, it doesn't put you on a disadvantage. It puts you at an advantage. Um, it, it tells us that at this same time, a man of the house of Levi, Exodus 2, went and took a, a, as a wife a daughter of Levi, And the woman conceived, bore a son. This is Moses. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she valued his life. This is what Hebrews 11 says. She hid him for three months. Notice notice how she has to adapt. She's not just copying, pasting some method to preserve the life of her kid. It says she couldn't no longer hide him. She's got to adapt. She's got to be on her toes. So she took an ark of bulrushes for him. A lot of of press in the Bible on arks saving people, right? took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid him in the reeds by the river's bank. Laid him in the reeds by the river's bank. Bars. Um, Verse 4. And his sister stood afar off, notice this, to know what would be done to him. So in that context, you see the contents of Jochebed's faith comes out. What is her ministry as a parent? What is the advantage that Moses has? His mom preserves his life. She's the one who single-handedly, by faith and defiance of the king, in recognition of the value of her child's life, she takes this ownership upon her to preserve his life, to save him, to do the hard work necessary. Not just one time, but multiple times, working at it like it was the most important calling she could ever receive. She devotes herself to preserving his life. I think this is a great picture of parenthood. This, this, this sort of these actions taken as I kind of think about my own life. Can I just give you a couple thoughts? If you're a parent, if you know a parent, maybe you could pass these along. If you're a grandparent, even, there there are some key things I think that we see here that we need to adopt in our own arsenal of our ministry to our kids. The first thing is is the first thing that we need to do is we need to purpose and prioritize our responsibility as a parent. We need to purpose and prioritize in our responsibility as a parent. We see this defiant purpose that Jochebed had. It was like her life purpose to save the life of her kid. It would be great for us to see that as well, so, much so that she prioritized her life around preserving him. One of the, I think, the best kind of examples, and, and uh, the, the, the example given here, and, and one of the best unpacking of of this that I've seen in in, uh, recent years is in this book that I've been reading by one of my favorite authors and pastors and leaders, John Tyson, out of New York City. The book is called The Intentional Father, and it's just one of many guides that can help you along the way as you're navigating your role and responsibility as a dad, but also as a parent. There's a section here, chapter two, where John Tyson talks about the five kinds of fathers. And they all kind of circle around the idea of how much purpose and prioritization is happening. And even though these are fathers, I want you to think of these also as parents. So so there's five of them, okay? He describes the irresponsible father, and they get better sequentially. There's the ignorant father. There's the inconsistent parent, the involved parent, and then there's the goal that we all want to get to. It's the purposed, intentional parent. He says the irresponsible parent, listen to this, it's one who has literally zero involvement with his kids or their kids. Someone who completely bails on them to the point that they don't even know who he is, or they are. This person takes no responsibility, provides no child support, and contributes no meaningful support into the lives of their children whatsoever. I hope that's not you. Okay, the next one. The ignorant father. This is the next one. The next step up, the ignorant father or or the ignorant parent is a type of parent that has no idea what they're doing and continually wreaks havoc in the lives of their children without even realizing it. They don't know anything about being a parent and don't try to learn. This is the key thing, and they don't try to learn or improve. Because of all this, they end up projecting their own brokenness onto the lives of their children. This is the ignorant parent. Third is the inconsistent parent. This is a person who is torn by personal ambition. So this parent has the capability of doing better at the whole parenting thing, but instead they prioritize their own job, career, and hobbies. They have these binges of selfishness that is often followed by guilt and these feeble attempts to fix everything, but there is no stable sense of security or identity passed on to their children. The next level up is the involved father. This is the type of parent that shows up at sporting events and takes the time to put porn filters on their kids' devices. They get a lot of things right, but because of the busyness of life and the failure to ask the right questions, they never seek to understand specifically. This is, I know this as a child. I know this as a parent now. This is so important. They never seek to understand specifically who their children are, how they work, and why God gave them to them. This is a noble parent, but a parent that's haunted by the sense that there's something more, another layer or level to their parenting. Lastly is the intentional father, which we can only pray and ask an or intentional parent that God would make us into this kind of a person, a person that looks a lot like Jacobed. This parent is deeply invested in discovering who their children are and how they can help them reach their redemptive potential. They seek to understand the children that God has given them, and they want to form them into young persons who can fulfill their God given purpose. What a vision. They see parenting as central. This is huge. They see parenting as central to their call before God, central to your calling, being a dad, being a mom. And they do it with all their might. This is the kind of parent that leaves multi generational blessing in the lives of their children. So even here, we just have a spectrum of purpose. All the way from no concern at all to some concern without the right tools to maybe the right tools but not the right desires. Maybe there's some distress. Like, think about for a second. Maybe you, you can kind of fit yourself neatly into one of these. Maybe you feel like, you're, I, when I read this, I'm convicted of like almost a little bit of everyone wanting to be a more intentional parent myself. But that's what we see modeled as, as the gift that preserves Moses' life. Another thing I would encourage you to do this is to proclaim and prophesy over your kids. Proclaim and prophesy. I think of almost the symbol of Jacob and covering their her, her her child, covering Moses with that basket with that reed of protection, and I, I get 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 a picture in my head of what I'm called to do as a dad. Like my goal with the time that I have with my children is to gift them with a spiritual force field of truth around their minds. To protect their minds. To lead them into truth. To proclaim God's word. This is what scripture says. That the words that God commands us should be in our heart and we shall teach them to our children. And shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You know, hey, Macarena. Everywhere you go. Whatever you do as you're going in your life. Now, it's okay, it's okay to like, supplement your ministry with other ministries, kids' ministry, mentors, but it's, the, the Bible doesn't allow us as parents to substitute our ministry. And that's a popular thing today. Is like, I'm, I'm going to outsource all of my kids' development. I'll pay tuition, and they'll get them smart, athletic, and spiritual. All right? Or I'll bring them to youth group, I'll drop them off at the door, And it's like, well, unfortunately, they're spending more time with you. Not unfortunately. I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Okay. that was mean. Oh, sorry. Um, Realistically, they're spending more time with you. And so really, the responsibility that you have, the, the, the leverage of influence that you have is exponentially greater than any mentor, exponentially greater than any pastor, exponentially greater than any youth leader, any school. The Scriptures call parents to this ministry because it's, it's the power of parenting that produces the fruit. Proclaim. Don't outsource it. Own it. But I also notice I like, prophesy too. Like, speak who God has called them to be over their lives. This is going to require that you ask God to show you by His Spirit who they are. What, what does their name mean? How does that speak, speak destiny and calling over them? Like, a big part of this is, and I've seen this, you know, working with youth, like, okay, so it's a little secret. I'm noticing that as time's going, time's going on and, like, more generations are coming up, it's like the generations that are coming, they're, they're more and more unchallenged than the one before it. This is, like, a big thing. This next generation is, like, one of those unchallenged generations. Everything's just handed to them. Here you go. Here's here's TikTok, it just asks nothing of you and gives you everything and knows what you want. And like everything is about feeding and and and, and babying and coddling. There's no prophetic, like, this is who you're called to be. Like that, that will do something for a generation. That's like, okay, this is your weaknesses, but look at your opportunities. Now, this is huge and a big part of parenting. If you're wondering, like is Andrew getting like crazy charismatic with this word prophesy? This is biblical, okay? So if you're biblical, you're charismatic. Hey All right. Andrew at soulschurch.com. Okay, pursue <laughs> pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. This is a commandment given to the church. And especially that you may prophesy. That you might, might speak God's word. And here's why we do that over our kids. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. God, this, and if, if this is a little weird for you to say, God, I pray that you would guide my... This, this is like the, the undercover charismatic way. God, I pray that you would guide my prayers and my words over my children. Okay, fine. Let's do that. All right, But prophetically, you're saying, God, give me words of life and hope for my kids. Let me, let me provide it. Like, I don't want my children going somewhere else to find their identity. You're the source that's going to bring them who God has called them to be. You're the one that God wants to use to give them who their identity is in Him and who, who He's calling them to be. This is so important. Nobody's looking at their watch, right? All right, good. Locked in. Okay. Practice and promote. This is another key part of this. Practice and promote. So, so, so we're going to purpose and prioritize, seeing that there's an intentional calling I have. We're going to, at the same time, proclaim God's word over them, building up this, almost like Jochebed did, this shield. She saw that Moses was a beautiful child. We see who God has called our kids to be. We speak it over them. But we also, we can't do all this without ourselves practicing and promoting the kind of faith that we want our kids to have. Um, like you've heard the expression I'm I'm not sure if you have but maybe you have that you don't reproduce what you want you reproduce what you are you don't reproduce what you want especially as kids you ever notice this you're like why are you doing that thing that looks just like me stop that okay the other day I was getting frustrated with one of the kids and I kind of raised my tone a little bit and a few seconds later I hear Judah stop it I'm like why are you yelling at her okay Where'd you learn that one, all right? We don't reproduce what we want. We reproduce what we are. And so this is just going to be true. Like, Paul talks about this as a principle for his own ministry. He talks about mothering and how it connects to his ministry. He says, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Look what he says. We were so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Like, do as I say, not as I do, does not Connect to reality, so there's the sense in which, which we realize ministry is at the end of the day, it's showing who you are, and that's really what's going to produce it. Like, when's the last time your kids stumbled upon, stumbled upon, and found you, caught you praying? Oops, daddy's reading his Bible. Oops, mommy's worshiping. Where are you modeling the kind of faith you want to see in your kids? Like, I so believe in the power of this that I I want to submit this thought to you today. And this would be maybe the, the thesis that I'm trying to communicate. The biggest threat facing our children is not the secular world. It's lukewarm parents. It's a lukewarm church. That's the the biggest threat is not the secular boogeyman. It's apathetic, unintentional, lukewarm mom and dad. That's what it's gonna trace back to. That's what we're and this isn't that's not to be an indictment for condemnation. It's meant to be an invitation. Like, look at what we get to be a part of. What what is more exciting than having the opportunity to shape the next generation? To shape their future, to shape who they are, and to, to take the responsibility of that upon our own lives. I'm going to cut this sermon short and end with this last point. Ben. I'm not even going to invite you up. I'm going to pray everyone out to brunch. It's going to be great, all right? Ben and Deb are sitting right there. You know we're not closing on worship, all right? Last thing, and I want to end with this, is pray and present. Pray and present. Um, there's this really cool rhythm in Scripture that I, I love living in, this the sort of tension that I live within in my faith, where there, there are things that God calls me to do that he will not do that I'm called to do. And then there is this rest that we live in at night where we go, at the end of the day, God's not going to do what he's called me to do, but I can't do what only God can do. I can't do what only God could do. Like, trust me, my parents, my dad's here, he could testify to this. Before my mom went home to be with the Lord, like, she's the living testimony of this. You, know, you get to the point where you go, IDK. IDK, what to do? I just don't know what else to do. And maybe you have a relationship like that. Maybe it's not even a parent. Maybe there's someone that, like, the door of, of your ministry. That I have some people like that in my life where it's like, you're not going to be around with, like, being able to proclaim that's not happening. But you know what you can do? You can pray. And like the way I love the picture there, as Moses' mother just kind of, there, there comes a point, listen, where she's not just preserving her life, but she's surrendering Moses' life. But she just puts him in that basket and trusts him to the Lord. What a picture of prayer and ministry. How we're called to we're called to cover those. Our prayers cover our kids. But it's also this practice of presenting them to the to the Lord, saying, God. They're yours. Take them. Do what I can't. You know, I believe that, you know, this could mess with some some theology, but I believe one of the main reasons why I'm a Christian today is because my mom persisted in prayer when there was no reason to. And despite my stubbornness, despite closing my ears, despite the defiance, um, she persisted. She persisted to present me to the Lord. And I think the, the way that this story ends, the way where the service and the story ends, is just a great reminder. Uh, look at, and this would, would have been the last thing, the consequence of Jochebed's faith is who Moses became, who God made him to be. Isn't that amazing to think about? But you, have, you have no idea what your little ministry right now is doing. Because if we're being honest, like parenting isn't just about, like, like this is a whole other sermon. Preserving the life of our kids from the, from the, from the culture. <gasps> Stay away. My kid. All right, little Tommy, are you okay? You're 20 now. You ready to move out? You know, like... <laughs> really, parenting is, is, is... It might start as preservation, but real ministry to the next generation is, is not about preservation for their survival, but Preparation. Like, I, listen, I, in my house, my goal is to be an intentional father that doesn't just raise kids who survive the scary culture, but, but the reason why you should have kids and why you should double down as a parent is because there's a commission given to us as the church. There is, a, there is a work of the kingdom happening in this world, and you have the unique opportunity to raise up some missionaries. You have the opportunity to raise up, like, what's going on with the church? What's going on in the homes? That's the future of the church. So what an opportunity to see that. Like, I'm looking at Judah. We have these honest conversations, and he's, praying. he's already like praying, like, who's God called me to be? What am I supposed to do? And to be a part of that with him? There's not like a survival mentality. There's a, how is God going to use you to bring light into the dark world? And that's what we see with Moses. We see the consequence of her faith. So uh, would you stand with me? I want to, um, as we get into this, uh, you know, it's a great way to kick off Advent, right? Parenting. But, you know, I- I'm reminded... Of a, of a scripture verse here that I just want to pray over you as, we, as I dismiss you guys. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good. Don't give up. Don't get tired. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Like, this is not just a parenting verse. This is a life verse, man. I mean, the encouragement here is, is to take your eyes. If you're ministering right now and you're serving, and you're not getting immediate results, fix your eyes back on Jesus. A lot of times we get discouraged because we're not seeing the investment, the return of our investment. But what an incredible call. What what an incredible reminder. Do not grow weary. Don't get tired. Keep sowing in the Spirit. Keep intentionally investing. Keep pursuing your children. Keep seeking to know them and grow as a parent. Keep a fresh vision of who God's called you to be. Keep asking God for vision for their life and speak that over them, who God's called them and designed them to be for in due season. You might not see it in your lifetime. Your kid might grow up to be Moses, a type of Moses in culture that influences the world for the kingdom of God. Amen?